The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. I have Peter Steinhauer here. He's an American photographer who spent a lot of time in Vietnam, and I'm here in Washington, D.C. Thank you so much for bringing me into your life in the last week, really. Wow, we're super happy to have you in here with us and yeah thanks for having me on here today it's, it's great to be on this so i'm here because of vietnam society vietnam week that you and aaron your wife mm-hmm. create i knew that there was a lot of stories that you as a, a photographer would come to the table with uh, one day in the podcast mm. but we were at dinner last night and we started talking about your work specifically with the churches yeah but before we get into that, I'd like to ask you, what was the journey that led you to Vietnam? Yeah, okay, that actually started when I was literally born, because uh, my father was in the war, 1966-67. He was a lieutenant commander in the 3rd Marine Division. He was an oral surgeon, um, and he was in Da Nang. And uh, I was born two weeks after he left. So um, when he came back, um, he had all these slides that he had um uh of course later on when i realized you know when i was old enough to know um you know he he had he had to take slides for records of everyone that he worked on um he was only on the mash unit you know on the the it was the th- uh, the um third marine division um their base it's right there actually it's still right next to the uh, it's a vietnamese military base now it's just right off the airport runway um, it, when you land going north, it's, there's some hills off to the side, about a, half, about a kilometer off, and that's the base. It's now a, a, a Vietnamese military base. Um, but that's where he was, and so he, um, he took a lot of slides and snapshots when he would go out to the surrounding villages and kind of clean teeth on the weekends of women children of women who were they the military base hired and they they onto the base and they would do the laundry and cleaning the barracks and so on and um he was just he and some other doctors they were giving back to them mm-hmm. and he would go out and he, and so during those times uh he's taking snapshots of you know rice fields and houses and you know the villages and black teeth you know my dad was totally you know fascinated with these black teeth so this must have been in hanoi no, this was in Da Nang. In Da Nang. Yeah, in Da Nang. I, I missed that. So yeah. Da Nang had black teeth. Yes, I didn't know yes, that. Yeah. Oh, so can we get into that? Like, yeah. What do, what do you know about the black teeth uh, from your father or from uh, just being there? Well, I, you know, of course, I, I, I first originally learned it from my father that they were black teeth. I had no idea why. And then later on, when I moved to, when I moved to Hanoi in 1993, I learned about the background of the black teeth, um, I can't say I'm an ex, you know historical right, right. Es- expert on it. But Did you ask your dad about the black teeth when you got back, or when you got there? Um, he didn't know the he didn't know the history, history of it. Yeah, he didn't know. Did the, he know any of the technical side, like why or if it really in fact saved their teeth or no. made it be- like better quality of life? Nope. He um, he didn't know anything about that. And originally, 
this is what I've heard consistently. I've heard a few different versions, but consistently um, during Japanese invasion, um, the French invasions, that it was done because of, of raping and making their teeth black, particularly the French. This is just what I've heard. Yeah. Just, it was a, for lack of a better term, it was a complete turnoff, you know, seeing women with black teeth. Interesting. And that's what I've heard. Now, anyone out there, uh, else out there who's listening to this, uh, there, there could be much different versions, but I, I've heard actually three or four different reasons why um, Japanese invasions is, um, and to separate them, actually knowing that who was, um, who was Chinese, who was Vietnamese, um, and, uh, you know, to separate themselves during, you know, different nationalities during different wars. So that's what I've heard. And so to, to differentiate themselves. So because of rapes, because of showing, you know, who was Vietnamese, who wasn't Vietnamese and so on, that that's, that's what I've always and, heard. And did the men have black teeth too? Um, for the most part, no, but I've seen a tremendous amount of men with only in the north right and far in the north never never in hanoi there's a there's a very famous artist in hanoi who who has them and um and he did that i think in the late 90s he dyed his teeth black i, I gotta say as an artist um and seeing so many um it's for me it's i'm it's stunning it looks cool it's 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 really really beautiful when they are done well. There's a one particular ethnic minority that I photographed um, when I was doing my project during the late '90s and early 2000s, and um, I was solidly working on ethnic minorities that time. And uh, she was a Num minority in Hazang Province, and her teeth were they were lacquer black, and they were her teeth were just perfectly kept. Um, no receding gum lines or any, and they were they were so beautiful. And she had jet black eyes and black hair, and they all wear black. And it was just it was like an incredible. Did you comedy. take a picture of her? Yes, okay. I, did. I have a, and I'll show to it to you. That. Yeah, yeah maybe we can insert this in somehow. Yeah, she's so amazing. intense looking, and she was so sweet. But her her look is 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 just really really intense. Let's go back to why you yeah. came to Vietnam. Yeah, so, yeah, back to that reason. Um, yeah, so, uh, anyway, fast forward, well, all through, all through, um, from third grade until I was a senior in high school, I gave slideshows for extra credit um, of my father's snapshots when he went out to these villages and just, you know, doing all of this stuff. And then, they were images of him, of course, of the mash unit and and the 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 um, the, the base, the marine base, and um, so yeah, third grade until I was a senior in high school, I gave you know an hour long slideshow and a presentation. So by the time I got to twelfth grade, I knew the history of the war. Um, I knew quite a bit about the war, and even growing up, even in seventh grade, I remember my one of my teachers. He was, I'm from Boulder, Colorado, so lots of hippies there, anti-war people. One of my teachers was a big-time hippie, and I think he was, I, my father was in the classroom with him, and I, I think he was just really blown away that this kid, seventh grader, was giving a slideshow for an hour on the Vietnam War. 
so my father in 1989 went back to Vietnam for the first time. He wanted to see the, who this war was against. And uh, how did he get to, to, to go back in 89? There's nothing opened up. Oh, yeah. For tourism, it was open. In 89? Oh, yeah. It was open in the 80s. Really? Yeah. But to Americans, I don't know exactly what date it was, but there were Americans who were... I, I know of a photographer who was living there. He was, he was in shooting in 1985. I did not know that. Yeah. I didn't, but I don't think the American government let Americans go back legally... Well, there, there even no when flights. I moved there, even when I moved there in 93, it was two and a half years before we had a diplomatic relations. It was still the embargo. And you had a direct flight in? No, I, had to, I mean, I flew to Bank from okay, that's, you know, yeah. the U.S. Like and Cuba, then fly right? into, yeah, you had to fly into Bangkok. Whether it was, I don't even know the legalities if we were able to buy things and bring them out. I have no idea. I, I didn't, quite frankly, I didn't care. I, I didn't care. Why? Why didn't you care? What, what? Because I always thought, of, you know, I remember yeah. thinking when I was a little kid, I thought of this whole thing, like Wait. this thing against Cuba. Like, why? Yeah. Who says I can't go to Cuba? Why? Who, like, the government puts these rules in that I can't go to Cuba just because they had a conflict? Why can't a, a, another human go to Cuba? Did, did, your, did your dad sort of guide you along that way of thinking? Did he yeah, kind of set the precedence? I, I, well, I was, I was blessed when I was a kid. We, as a family, we traveled a lot. My parents took us traveling all the time and internationally we took, you know, we traveled internationally and um, so I, I had this yeah, this bold way of looking at going to a place that the Ameri your American government the American government said, you know, there's restrictions yeah. on going there and for you, like I can hear the language, you're like fuck it, I, I'm, yeah. I, don't, I really don't care. Yeah, I didn't really care although at that time it was legal and the, the, the reason was that there was a certain time where they allowed American servicemen to come back. And I believe that was 87, 88. Mm. Then, so if you were American military, I believe you could start coming back like 87. I may be wrong about, but I know that there was a date of, on that. But, <clears throat> you know, my father wanted to come back and he wanted to see who this war was against. So he went back and he actually went to Hanoi because he wanted to go to the north to see this. And so went in, he went by himself um, he was scared to death. He was actually really scared that he was, you know, Gonna he get might get detained. attacked or hurt. He wasn't, he, wasn't, he, he wasn't worried about getting detained, but he was worried about, like, people hurting him, someone attacking him or something, because he didn't know. Yeah. I mean, it was, that, was, that was, you know, enemy territory then, you know. And so, but he f always fell in love with, like, during the war, he just fell in love with the people and these women who are, cleaning the barracks he was always joking around with them and when he went out to the villages he was like you know and as a doctor too he's he's like working on north vietnamese prisoners and south vietnamese i remember him telling me and he was like i don't see the difference what they all they both look the same they sound the same to me even though they there was a distinct accent uh difference for the most part um but so um you know he had this desire to go back and so he helped found after he came back and he, he found some other uh, doctors who were vets in Colorado, and um, they, um, they formed a group called Friendship Bridge, and it was, they get, got uh, donated medical equipment from the U.S., from hospitals around the U.S. that the hospitals were getting uh, rid of, and then they brought it to Vietnam and 
dispersed it all throughout the country to hospitals there. And then they would bring doctors over from there, bring them into Colorado, and they would live in, in our families. I had these Vietnamese doctors living in our families with us, in our houses for a couple of weeks. They would observe surgery, and then they would, and, and this donated equipment, and then they would go back to Vietnam and then teach the doctors back there how to use it. And that first, of course, started in Hanoi, and then it just went out to the rest of the country that they started working with hospitals there. So, in short, my story started when, after a few years, that was 89-90 it started, and I finished uh, art school at the Art Institute of Colorado in uh, 90, you know, I think early 93, 92, I can't remember, and and then I had my first chance to go over to Vietnam to live, which is 1993, and I moved. I was going to stay for two or two months, just make some black and white portraits and some landscapes, and I landed, and um, it's, it's interesting how you, I still have it written in my journal. It was like after my 10th day, I was like, this, I, I feel like I've found where I'm supposed to be, and I want to live here. And um, yeah, and I, and I lived, so I stayed there. I lived in Hanoi for four and a half years. There's a lot years. of subject, <clears throat> there's a lot of subject matter as a photographer that comes from another place, when you're looking out to the landscape, there's so much subject. Yeah. How do you know where to put your crosshairs on? Well, I mean, I was young then, um, but I had a this very distinct idea of what I was gonna do when I got there. Um, I was, uh, my schooling was commercial background schooling, um, but, um, <clears throat> you know, and I, and I had always wanted to work for Time Magazine. I wanted to shoot covers of people for Time Magazine. That's what I wanted to do commercially. But my heart, and um, as an artist, I wanted to print for galleries. I wanted to have exhibitions of my work in galleries and print landscapes. And as I shot portraits throughout school and became more... Um, involved with portraiture and really focused on portraiture, in particular environmental portraiture, when I landed there, I just saw these, you know, my idea, any photography that was coming out during then in the early 90s, it was all kind of National Geographic looking work, you know, it was color, it was water buffaloes and rice fields and it was street scenes, great work. But I always wanted to see in people's houses. Like I wanted to see in like factories and workshops and I wanted to see in artist studios and, and I never saw any of that. And everything I saw was color and it was just like available light. And I'm into lighting. So I like going into environments and setting lights up. So I brought my, these Swiss lights, these, these flash units that are about this big and I can put a light anywhere and that's, my first book was called Vietnam Portraits and Landscapes. And that's what I did. They were all environmental portraits of, of Vietnamese who had no um, interaction really with Westerners and who are just Vietnamese. And they were artists, factory workers, they were countryside people, uh, farmers, uh, pagoda keepers, um, you name it, just normal people in, in houses. And so I, that was my focus when I landed there. But to answer your question, I saw 
I saw projects everywhere. Like, I was like, look at these roofs and this architecture. Well, look when, at when you are a young photographer <clears throat> and you're looking and there's so many options, do you think about the monetizing side of it? Um, and I ask because I think so many artists that are starting out have this sort of like fear that how can I feed myself? How can I go mm. on with life if I have so much diversity to shoot or to like even music? Like if you're trying to figure out what genre you fit in, you're trying to figure out all this stuff. I mean, how does your brain process the process of eventually making money off of what you're seeing? Well, I think at least for my case for I knew for the short term, you know, for short term or immediate future, you know, one to a year and a half down the road, um, you know, I'd spoken this over with my parents and I was like, I, I want to live here and I want to make work that no one has made. So I was able to, you know, I had saved up money, um, what I had left from school, which wasn't much, but I had saved stuff and I sold whatever I could to make money. And then my parents also helped fund uh, me and I gave myself my own master's program. And that's where I came up with this project, Portraits and Landscapes. But I was also fortunate enough that, you know, during this um, organization that my father helped create, they brought a girl from Hanoi. They, um, if I can, I'll explain just about this. So when any foreigner at that time went in, they had someone from the Ministry of, of Foreign Affairs, a minder with them for any foreigner who wants to work in Vietnam. So my father was teamed up with this certain man and they just hit it off and they eventually felt like they were brothers. Wow. And they had this incredible relationship. Foreigners weren't allowed in Vietnamese houses then, so they would meet outside in a restaurant and um, they brought their daughter their oldest daughter, who was then 16, and my parents just like fell in love with her. And they, so after four or five times over the next year and a half, um, next two years, they, um, 90 to 92, they asked the family, let's bring her over to Colorado and we'll put her, my parents said she can live with us, we'll put her through her last six months of high school, and my dad said, I'll put her through the University of Colorado. And that's what he wanted to, he wanted, that's, that's his reconciliation process. He wanted to give back to this horrible war. You know, that was his first step into, like, I want to, I want to be reconciled with this so-called enemy. So she came over and lived with my family, and I live with hers. I went over and lived with hers. Her father actually came over and, and he started working in the, the Vietnamese mission, was it, which was in New York. And then he, he was one of two or three guys that ended up opening the Vietnamese embassy here in, in D.C. And, so, and I lived with her family in Hanoi. While he was here, I lived with her mother, her younger sister, and her younger brother. Like right in the middle of Hanoi. Like... And only the 10-year-old girl then, she was maybe 11 or 12, she spoke English. The little boy, he spoke a little bit of English. The mother didn't speak any English. And um, How long did you live there for? Uh, nine months with them. 
Yeah, I lived nine months with them. And then I moved into one uh, house with one of these doctors who was working um, uh, within the organization, you know, that was involved with the organization that my father helped create. So, and then I stayed on with her and I lived with her for almost four years in her house. So back to your question is how did I, about the money thing, they just live with us. I had no rent to pay. Yeah. I was just like, it's like winning the lottery. I, I, it was, I don't know how I got, I mean, it's relationships. That's what everything's about. Everything in my mm-hmm. opinion is it's about relationships. And, um, I was able to live with them and what they were getting back from the organization and the, the medical equipment and the education. She was just live with me. And so she's my, like big sister like we are like this she is my sister the the one that came to live with your parents uh well yes she's my little sister yes she's but the woman at the doctor i lived with who i eventually moved in with she's she's like my big sister she's vietnamese yeah boxy twi she was the head of the the ear nose and throat institute in bak mai hospital in hanoi and at what point did you begin to learn vietnamese right away yeah I mean, I mean that, that was a conscious decision. I need to learn this. I'm going to stay. I'm going to learn it. Yeah. I mean, as soon as, I mean, I, that helps again from my traveling background. Yeah. It always helps to say something. You go into someone else's country, at least learn how to say thank you and please, you know, at the very minimum, that opens doors. You know, that's just, that's just yeah. basic respect. So, so at, at, at what point now do you start picking a subject? Um, I had the subject. Oh, you mean actual actual subjects? Yeah, actual subjects to say. Can I is, photograph you? Yeah, I'm gonna. Well, it's more for me. I want to because I'm very interested in the the journey of an artist as well. Mm. Because you know, you start out with this wanting and this desire to capture and express, <clears throat> but at some point it becomes um, a way of life and a way yeah. of of feeding your family and, and making money. <clears throat> but it becomes. Um, all of this rawness that we're capturing as an artist doesn't really solidify up until some point where you're like, oh, this is sort of like where I'm honing in on and then you develop this and then you can now sell it to galleries or get representation. And then many years later, you're shooting these churches. So I want to get to know the journey to how you go from, you know, Face to face. That's thirty years. You yeah, know. yeah. It's, yeah. Um, so we're we're along in the in the early days where you're like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna go here and I'm gonna start sending it back to gallery owners or whatever professionally. Um, after like nine months. Oh wow. So my first nine months of just shooting, um, and I came back with like, you know, I, I shoot big cameras at that time, large format cameras. And I didn't, it wasn't going around with Nikons or Canons. I, I come from a large format background. So the big cameras with the bellows and the, you know, you put the cover over yeah. your head. That's what I shot. Um, because that's the quality in those negatives is, is immense. And, and that's what I, what I'm, what I crave. Um, so I, shoot all this film. I shot Polaroid at that time because, of course, this is all film. We're talking film these days. For those who have never shot film, that's, there, were no, there was no digital. So it was all film, and I had a suitcase of Polaroid that I went through. So as I'm setting lights up, I would always shoot a Polaroid until yep. everything was good, and I'd switch the Polaroid off and put in the film and shoot. 
Ziplocs, a Polaroid in with the Ziploc so I know what the f either the roll of film or the sheet of film which goes into these boxes. They're big 8 by 10 inch sheets or 4 by 5 inch sheets and they go into the freezer and I froze my film for nine months and then I fly into San Francisco and go to this lab that was there and um, they processed all my, I drop all my film off and they process my film and I get the negatives back with contact sheets and then I went into the dark room and I would make prints and that's when I got my first maybe 20 portraits and my first nine months was focused on portraits. I got some landscapes too, but my focus was portraiture. So I had all these portraits, and I, um, on, on my way back, to, I took a month, came home, three weeks to a month, got my fill of whatever kind of food I was missing at the time, Mexican food, maybe, probably at the Every, most. Everybody <laughs> to go to Vietnam <laughs> craves Mexican yeah. food. And I grew up in Colorado, yeah. so, you know, it was, it's kind of in my blood, or it was in my blood anymore. I can't eat it very much anymore. Um, but it, uh, on my way back, um, stopped in San Francisco, and I went into some galleries, and I just look. I've been. In, I'm living in Vietnam. Would you be willing to take a look at my work? Some people say yes. Some people they don't like. You know, galleries don't tend to really like drop-ins. But I I had two galleries of like Vietnam, and so, yeah, sure. Let's see what you got. And I was 24, 20. I don't know, 24, 25 years old. And boom, they shot, and they were like, "Wow, show me more when you come back." And so I developed. A relationship with one particular gallery that ended up later on represented me in San Francisco and that was my first gallery that took me on the second one was of course it was in Denver um, which of course that's uh, that was an easy one to go in to see but they were galleries that photograph you know that took on black and white silver prints out of dark rooms so um, yeah that's how it started and uh, um, and then it just went on from there. But as my, you know, as my career went on, you know, first book, you know, I worked on my first book for four years. And then during that time when I'm still focused on these, I went into other projects like documenting Hanoi. You know, I, I had never came from Boulder, Colorado. I'd never lived in a city with, you know, at that time, Hanoi, I think had 4 million people in it. Um, and so dense. And, I seen the the density, seen the architecture and the the urban the urban landscape, you know, which I was living within. I started to really look at that rather than coming from where I came from, Colorado, which is big open landscapes and and that was what my interest was, natural, you know, out in nature. But I soon became almost obsessed with urban landscape. And so then and those are my 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 um, my uh, uh, influences in photography are 19th century photographers. Uh, Eugene Adjay, he was French, and he photographed in you know the late 1800s, early 1900s. He documented Paris, like windows, um, wrought iron, like terraces, roofs, um, and he has the largest collection of documentation of streets and buildings and architecture that France has, and of particularly Paris. And um, he was one of my influences. And so as, I, as you mature and grow as an artist, that's where I started thinking and I, I, I started doing that with Hanoi, just with 
not thinking about selling is this going to sell i i had i had immediately had fallen in love with this town and this city in the in the 90s late 90s it sounds like you were well on your way and i'm sure you made trips back home to the us did people question what vietnam was really like at the time because not oh, a lot yeah. of people had gone oh, yeah. right yeah what well, what was what was the sort of the <clears throat> What was sort of the sentiments of, of people that you would run into uh, back in America? Oh, uh, the main one was like, don't those people want to kill you? You know, th- th- no one knew anything about Vietnam. It was just it's the same as almost the same as today, like what we've been talking about this week. It's still Vietnam is a war. No one knows about like this is a country of 4000 years old. And um, we don't learn about it here in the United States. We don't learn about the history, and of, partly because there was an embargo, partly because it was, you know, it was it was this one of probably it was the most um, that war has affected the United States more than any other war, um, and it still does today, um, as all do. But this one in particular is just still wrenching heart-wrenching for so many people but but you can imagine and, like this is going on with kabul and afghanistan yeah. and iraq and everything and the people probably there but probably like not really in that war mentality if we go back as americans they're probably not even thinking any they're not thinking twice about who we are no like when i had gone in in 93 i was you know i, I was i wasn't scared but i was a little preconceived you know, notions yeah right? like yeah. but immediately I found like it was so shocking to me they find out an American and like they want me into the house for tea like they're so curious and it turned out like they had which I didn't know really but at that particular at that young age right they'd had two wars since the U.S. war ended like with China and Cambodia where a million people died so they I remember people telling me like we don't even have time to think about that. That was three wars ago. You know, we had been invaded by China, and we had the, the war with Cambodia in the south, and they were both over the same years, you know, 1978-79. So that was only four years after the war ended with the U.S. And they're, boom, they're into a huge war with China. Who, I mean, these, these are things I don't even think about. Yeah. yeah. It's like, I, you know, and the China, you know, with China, it was all through the north. Yeah. And then Cambodia is all the way down into the south at two different parts of the country. At the same time. And they're trying to be unified and they're, you know, and they lost a million people. But they got through it. Yeah, they got through it. And but because that's the that I would say after 30 years of my thing, the most amazing thing about the the Vietnamese, they're so unbelievably resilient and like this power of the strength of just its survival like it's something that i don't i can't comprehend because i i didn't grow up with that but when you are faced with you know wars and famine and difficulties with governments and separations of families and like the list just goes on and on it's just so hard to comprehend still today you're left with nothing else to you either you either survive or you die and the fighting spirit in the vietnamese is just it's it it's it's a, it's unbelievable like it's just 
survive. Boom. And we do anything to survive after that. So, and it's something I, I just can't comprehend it because mm-hmm. I, I, I've never had to experience that in life. And that's how they've gotten past this. They don't forget, but they have this incredible, this is what I've learned about what I learned very early on. They don't forget the war with the U.S., but they have this incredible ability to forgive and just go forward and just go past it. You, you've spent some time in the North. Have you spent some time in the South as yeah, much? Yeah, I lived, I, actually, I lived longer in Saigon. I lived okay. eight, eight years in so Saigon. So let me ask you a funny question. Yeah. Do you consider yourself more Southern or more Northern? Mm. And I ask that because I know you speak I can make the language. Enemies. I can make enemies. Or not enemies. I can, I can get people pretty, uh, what? We'll, we'll give you a free pass because, you know. Look, I'll, I'll say this. I, I am. Um, Don't I, give me any clean version no, here. No, it's not clean. Like, no, this is this true from my heart. Yeah. I absolutely love both places. Um, if I had to actually live there, which I will one day again. We will move back to Vietnam uh, one day. Um, it will, I would say the South. I would live in Saigon. Why? Um, it's, a uh, well, weather. Um, now I'm going to preface everything because I won't say that I'm just solidly live there. Yeah. I want a house in both places. Right. In the North and the South. Yeah. I want a house in Hanoi. I want a house in Saigon. I want a house in Halong Bay. Like, a, an, a, you know, I want an apartment. When, and that's when, my desire. But the weather in Saigon... And in the south um, is better. I mean, the weather is very, very, very hot and humid in, in the north in the but, but summer. Who, but who are you? If you were to take on an animal spirit, is Hanoi. it the north or the south? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a Hanoian. Yeah. Yeah. Why? It's the, it's the vibe of the city. It's the vibe. Um, it's the food. It's the seasons. You know, the winter. Um, there's... I would say three seasons, you know, um, it, it's the winter's cold, it's foggy, um, and you're, you know, you're wearing big, thick, heavy winter coats, and it's cold, and it's, I like that. I mean, that's where I'm, I'm from Colorado, so I, I like that. The, the leaves change, the leaves fall. Saigon is, you know, in the south, it's, it's, hot, it's hot, and it's mm-hmm. kind of the rainy season, and there's mild weather. There's definitely mild weather, which happens like right now, October through February is, is amazing weather. And you're thinking, when you think in Vietnamese, do you identify more as a Hanoian or a Saigon? Probably, just because I moved there first and I lived there. My first four and a half years in Vietnam were in, in Hanoi. And I, I love it. But, I, you know, like I said, I moved, I lived eight years in Saigon. And I, when I'm there, I'm, I love that city. I absolutely love, I love it. Yeah. And they're very different. Very you know, different. they're both very different. The food's different. The people are people different. Are different. Culture's different. Culture's different. The way they see life is very different. Yeah. And I, both of them are amazing. And then the center. You know, the center is amazing. It's much slower. But I still, like, actually, for me right now, the, the most beautiful and best city and I think vibrant and cool city right now is Da Nang. Yeah, that it's, like it's popping off the map right now, and that's yeah. it's been like that for like the last seven, eight years for me. It's like wow, this place is amazing. It's right on the you know, it's on the beach, and that's where you know Aaron and I got we were married on the beach there, right where my dad was. Um, it, that I yeah, it's just 
it's spectacular. Yeah. Let's get into the churches because this yeah. is uh, something that yeah. uh, blew my mind. Mm. So you traveled around, and I think you began to notice this stuff on day one. The the, the fact yeah. that there are these uh, old churches that the French yeah. sort of brought their flavor yeah. into the north. <clears throat> And there's a huge Catholic um, contingency up in the north. Yeah. And we see, we witness vestiges of French culture dotted all along the countryside in, in the north and around <clears throat> Hanoi. Tell me how you began to kind of explore these pieces um, and, and why you gravitate so much towards it. Well, I think, you know, I... It's when I, my first month there, um, I went down to the province called Ningbing, and it's south of Hanoi, about 70 to 80 kilometers. We went down there. They took me down to their house to see the relatives and so on, and um, I saw these enormous cathedrals, and it just blew me away. I was, what is this thing? I didn't know there was, were, I, don't, I didn't know these were here, you know, and... Um, and they're big. These cathedrals are huge. You know, they're equal to anything in, in France. And, you know, you see these in, in, in... All over Europe. All over Europe. They're huge cathedrals. You know, they fit like 1,000 to 1,500 people inside. They're enormous. And I was just completely... The, the interest about it was because I... That's the last thing I expected there. I was thinking pagodas everywhere because it's, you know, it's a Buddhist, mostly Buddhist. At least when I got there, I thought the whole country was Buddhist. Um, I was young, so I didn't quite know the history yet. But then, of course, I found out later on, you know, they, Catholic, these things came actually came in before the French. They, the, the first influx of Catholicism came in 400 years ago. And then followed by the French when they came in to colonize, and then they brought much more of it in. So, but these churches weren't there 400 years ago, right? That, that was some of no, no, they weren't. Their Catholicism came in. There were smaller ones, but they and then eventually grew. And the main part of them were in uh, Namding province, Namding, Ningbing, and. And right next to these are three provinces that flank each other that are south of Hanoi. The center one is Namding, Ningbing, and then Taibing. And those three provinces, but particularly Namding, has the highest density of, of Catholicism. It's woven into the fabric. It's every day. Like everyone in the province is, is Catholic. Everyone is. is it's, it's incredible. And there's... So I, you know, I, I learned about all of this as as time went on, um, but I, I started to take this project on again recently. You know, I was reminded of it. Um, actually, in 2020, I read an article during COVID on um, in the New York Times about. And this was resurface this project. I had always wanted to photograph them. I didn't know how, but I knew that that would be a project, you know, 25 years ago. I knew I'd photograph them somehow. I just didn't know how. Um, but 2020, uh, an article came out in the New York Times, and there's a big, huge temple in um, 
Namding that they tore, they were tearing down. And there was a lot of controversy about it. The World Bank was involved in it. Um, and uh, the Catholic community around the world was, you know, it was a, it's, they wanted it, the World Bank had wanted it to um, become a world heritage. Um, the government, uh, I don't know if it was the government, but it somehow was declined and it, was, it wasn't considered a world heritage site. And it's the uh, cathedral is called um, Buichu. 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 That's a very famous cathedral. Yes. So they, they, it, it's, they ended up not tearing it down, but through negotiations and money that was donated, um, which some was turned down according to this article. They, anyway, they ended up tearing some of it down and restoring a lot of it and basically just building it brand new again. And they wanted more parishioners in it. And um, so it's been closed. And the last, my last trip was um, in June or it, May, May. I went up to it and it's still being worked on right now. Uh, after still two years, there's still, and the, you can't get into it, you can't see it. And there's huge walls around its construction and everything. So this is why. I am fascinated by this conversation is because uh, I've been going back to Vietnam since the late 90s. And, you know, when, when you go back as a just a casual visitor like me, you just see the Notre Dame in, in District 1. And you just think that it's something that uh, is an anomaly, right? It's one, one church. And then you see all these, like, newer, new-ish yeah. churches all around Saigon. Yeah. But when I got to see the shot that you took in your house it's a a, a beautiful blue patina mm. and you started to tell me about the the, the history right. and it wasn't really you it was uh Kung oh, that was telling okay. me about uh, right. uh, the 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 history of, of this church and then we broke it down you broke it down to me uh, at dinner time the importance of this conversation is this there's around, you said, 600 of these churches yeah. uh, in, in Ningbing. Uh, Namding. Namding. Na Namding province. Namding yeah. province. There's 600, but they're tearing these things down. Yeah. And for me, the, the dilemma for me inside of me is on one hand, there is a colonial aspect that I side with the, the, the government. I side mm. with the people of Vietnam Tear, tear this shit down yeah. because it's a reminder, just like the statues mm -hmm. in the South mm -hmm. here in America, we have reminders of, of, uh, of, of Confederate generals. Yeah. Right. Um, <clears throat> but, but it's part of, it's woven into the fabric and the history, yeah. the architectural history of Vietnam. And, but it, it pains me to, to, to see such beautiful structures being torn down. So there's yeah. like this, how do you feel about this? Well, I, I, it's hard for me because I, they're, they're beautiful. And yes, I, I agree with you as well about the, um, you know, many struggle with the, the colonial past and they don't want, you know, that was hard for the Vietnamese, you know, 150 years of being colonized. Um, and, but... It is woven into the fact, like the cities look like they do. Um, the architecture looks like they do largely because of the French and the Vietnamese. So it's, there was a lot of French architecture mixed in with Vietnamese materials and Vietnamese. It's, 
everyone always thinks that it's just French colonial architecture. It's not. It's actually Vietnamese architecture also fused in with French design. So, and you can see that too. Yeah, and you learn that afterwards. Um, of course, when a general tourist goes in, they oh, it's French architecture, but it it's actually not, and it's it's French and Vietnamese. And I I wish. I mean, I'm not Vietnamese, but even though I feel it, and I've been there for so long, but it's, it's, um, it's so beautiful to me, and it's really sad to see, um, particularly when I lived there, this untouched stuff that was just incredibly beautiful, and that's why people were going there to see this, because it was so unique. Now it either being considered very old, which it actually it is. There's a lot of wiring issues and electrical issues, that need, plumbing issues. Um, the facades, some of them are falling down. But I wish there was more of a restoration part of it that would keep it alive um, and rather than just scrapping these things or completely turning them into like cafes now. Yeah. And um, I, I, I could see a whole business around these church tours. You know, you, you have uh, yeah. an operator that can put together, you know, 50 of these churches and the one with the, the most history and, and really guided tours. Um, something like that would perhaps preserve uh, the cultural yeah. UNESCO-ish uh, yeah. thoughts of, of keeping this stuff around. And I, I, think, I think there are a lot of tours like that. Um, as far as making money towards preservation, I, I don't know. Uh, um, as an artist, you know, who's dedicating and will continue to dedicate my life's work to Vietnam, um, this is a subject matter like at the foundation of the, they're coming down and I want to document just like I have documented so many subjects before, um, I want to document them before they come down to show what it was like. Like all my Hanoi work in my second book, you can go through almost every image. This the city is is that time period is totally gone. Like it's completely gone. There's nothing in like 40 pages, uh, 40 images in that book. Nothing like that. You can't you cannot see anymore. How does that make you feel? Um well, it makes me yeah, I guess feel good as an artist and, you know, I I guess Without sounding egotistical, I was. I'm kind of proud that I was able to look and because I love it, I, I love the place, and so I wanted to record it. Yeah, I want to record it because it was my home, and it's a place that I, I felt for many years. I felt way more comfortable there than I did back in here, and that's why I continued to live there for so long. But at the same time, it's um, I'm sad. Yeah, as a human being, you are doing the cultural work of preserving just this yeah. is really just humankind yeah. at this point right there's no white there's no vietnamese there's no nothing it's right. just your eyeballs yeah and your brain is recording a relic of the infusion of yeah. these two cultures that yeah. and i think that um when i think back on it 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 your work in the last 24 hours because i've been thinking about this has melted away my prejudices of holding on to the past mm. of colonialism, mm. of how I view white people mm. being in Vietnam. Wow. Um, because now 
I want to approach a little bit more openly, which is this is just humankind preserving something just so beautiful. And when I do look back on these churches, I know that my mother came from that town yeah. because she's Baknamitu oh. and Baknin uh, Namdek yeah. and all of those places. Yeah. This is her hometown. Wow. And these Baknin. are the places that I know. Um, growing up, uh, I heard a lot of um, um, accents from um, Buchu, yeah. Buchu and these places. So now I literally have context to the visual side of why these things were so wow. popular. Yeah. And you're not Vietnamese. You're not, I don't look at you as a white guy anymore. I look at you as a human being mm. because of Vietnam society and Vietnam week and where contextually we are today, today, yeah. literally today. Um, I, I, I feel just a, a, a closeness to humankind because mm. we are able to, 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 to put these pieces together of the Vietnamese culture. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I don't know why, you know, it's interesting how to, to the war, this war that we are against, it, it out of the war creates beautiful Beauty. things. I have, my wife, I have three amazing children who are half Vietnamese. If the war never happened, I never would have met my wife. She wouldn't have come here. Vietnam society wouldn't exist. Um... You know, I wouldn't have my three kids. Uh, you probably wouldn't be here. Yeah, I think about that often. Yeah, and, 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 and I think so, about Vietnam society and Vietnam Week, and I'm like, why do we need to have this? Mm, you know, yeah. What, what, what? Why is it important to have this autumn festival day inside this auditorium at Eastern Market uh, here in DC? And um, it's not as important, um, I think, to somebody my my generation as much as it is, it's parallel to the work that you do with the churches, mm. is to kind of uh, show the future generations the beauty of these things that are happening and were happening, yeah. and to kind of record it, uh, because it's a beautiful thing. And, 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 and I'm, I, don't make any, um, I don't make any false illusions in my mind that this stuff is gonna last forever. It won't, it just won't. It's just like you're, the churches that you shoot, that Jung Tu, is not going to be third, fourth generation here. Right. I don't think it's, I, I just, I make no illusions about that anymore. But for the here and now, and for your children, my children, to kind of be able to witness the games and, and sort of like the lanterns and yeah. just vestiges of that culture is, is a beautiful thing. Well, I hope that continues. I mean, you know, again, the country's 4,000 years old, so... I'm not quite sure exactly how long Techum Tu has been going on, but I know it's an extremely long time, maybe 2,000 years old. I, 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 I don't know exactly. But I wonder how long, you know, my kids, your kids, their kids are going to care about this stuff, you know? Because you look at fourth generation, fifth generation Japanese, yeah. you know, it's... <laughs> They're, yeah. they're just now... Uh, and, and I used to have so much judgment about that. Oh. But now I'm beginning... Because of this experience with the churches, yeah, I'm beginning to see it differently. It's like, hey, this is here for me to enjoy now. You know, what you put up is something I can connect with because I know the history of my mother yeah. uh, and, oh, wow. and, and her connection to Catholicism and that wow. part of the world. And when she sees these pictures, 
in a book or, or something, it will rock her her soul wow. because she's a diehard Catholic and wow. and no, no judgment anymore because you know I didn't I, I really walked away from Catholicism but yeah. but now it brings on a whole new meaning uh, wow. the churches and, wow. and the beauty of it. You know, um, it's interesting you say that because they're the people who I meet actually you know particularly. The, well, in Vietnam, and in particular in Hanoi, because that's when I, when I go into work there, in Namding, I'll I'll do like nine days in Namding, and then I come back to Hanoi for two days because the work is very intense, and then I go back down there for like another nine, ten straight days of working. You know, it's getting up at four thirty a.m., four a.m., and you know we're working until the sun goes down. Eat dinner, go back to your little you know, hotel, and then, you, you know, I got to download images, blah, 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 get some sleep, and then I'm back up again at 4 a.m., and can, it's just driving around, so the people, when I come back in to Hanoi, when I come back and, and talk, people are actually, and even my assistants who are with me, they know what I'm doing, and they're, of course, they're, I've been, they've been working with me for a long time, but then they start learning about all of this, and when talking to mm. other people, Adults, you know, even adults in Hanoi, and I show them the images, and they're like, "Oh my God, I, you know, I know these are there, but I've never really taken the time to really understand how incredible these places are." And other, particularly young people, like, you know, twenties to to forty, when I show them, they are like, some of them are even like, "This is Vietnam." Some of them don't even know. I wish there you know? was a podcast just dedicated to the history the design the paints the patinas the architecture everything of these churches and then one that we just dedicate to and we'll get into this right now to the shooting of 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 the church make one no, I mean, it requires a lot of bandwidth, <laughs> yeah. you know, to, to, yeah. to really put something like, you know, like a 10-part series on, yeah. on these churches. But it's so esoteric. It's so niche that, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm totally fascinated because each facade has a different feel. Yeah. And, like, who, who designed this stuff? Who, who are the builders? Yeah. How did they finance this stuff? How did yeah. they fund it? Yeah. I, actually, that's a great question. I don't know about the funding of, of all of that. I know that... Um, I do know that the the um, the uh, the there's Baroque architecture, and um, there's a large amount of Baroque ar- architecture mixed in with Vietnamese architecture, and then some like the prints, the, the large print that I showed you that's you know behind us here, um, that is mixed in with the actual the a, a temple a, a pagoda, and mixed in, and it's a Catholic cathedral you know but it takes and it's it's got the meshing of like a buddhist um pagoda mixed in with catholic cathedral elements elements on it and it's it's amazing and so the french they were designed in but all the vietnamese built it and that's where I, i want the vietnamese to be proud of that like viet it wasn't like a crew of of the French were in building these like Vietnamese hands built that Vietnamese blood, Vietnamese hands built but, but all of that. But if you think about it, there's 600 of these still around. Maybe I, there was a thousand at a time. I think actually, time. I think that's just kind of an average number of yeah. the, they're everywhere. Like 
you're on top of one and you can you turn you make a 360 another, yeah you see at least within a uh within like two kilometers you know whatever like a mile away you can see in the distance you can count like probably the five steeple or six. of another one yeah these they're everywhere oh. everywhere yeah and like, again, you know, uh, my brain goes to how did they, I mean, these are probably equivalent to multi-million dollar projects back in the day. Yeah. To, to, yeah. To, and who funded it? Who, yeah, I don't who know put where all they, this stuff together? I have no Because idea. they just didn't magically appear like a mushroom. And it's a lot of material. A lot of material. And there's stained glass in it. It's and not it's, like painted glass. These are stained glass. You know, it's stained glass that's in there. And... um there's the the uh the tiles on the roof like the the one that i showed you i mean that looks like it's right out of um italy yeah you know and all the tiles on the top and that's expensive material and to get them cut and then all the motifs all the way around and the the when you get up the when people go in and see these like you know the carving into them into the stones and the bricks intricate are, work it's incredible now now when it's you incredible. When you first started to see these things, I'm sure that you were wondering, uh, because we talked about this, I'm sure you were wondering, um, because when you're standing below on the floor level, you did you think that you were getting an accurate picture in your mind's eye of the facade? I mean, what was your approach to getting this thing shot? Yeah, um, well, I'm an architectural photographer, so fast, you know, you'd asked me earlier about my career. It was starting about 18, 15, 18 years ago, I started to transition into urban architecture and then solidly architecture, man made structure. So um, I, um, I'm very, I like things very uniform, very structured, very, um, I don't like. As an architectural photographer, I don't like converging lines going up, like looking up at a building. I like things very straightforward, very... Um, so when your perspective skews the, the lines, right? Yes. And so these things are so big that normally I would want to get up on, you know, if there was a building you know, in front of it, I'd get up on like the 10th floor and shoot straight out to see how the architect originally thought you know when they think of these cathedrals how they thought them to be designed they didn't think of them being down on the ground looking up at them and seeing lines go up and they always when they're drawing them they have an idea and um but there are no 10-story buildings outside of these things so um it took me a very long time to think about how to get perspective on this and that's when i i told you i found uh a company in Europe that has these tripods. They're actually made for satellite phones, or you see them on um, satellite dishes. You see them on television crews where they, on the back of a truck, they'll be like this um, pneumatic mast that goes up like 30, 40, 50 feet. The military uses them all the time. And there are these sections of you know, one meter that you pump them up and hydraulic. hydraulic goes up. Mine is pneumatic. So you, you pump it up with a hand pump. Um, and they just, these sections go up and their mine goes up 32 feet or eight meters. And, uh, and I found a, uh, a mount for the top of mount the camera on that has a long cable. And then you, the, 
I can do a little bit of movement. The camera can go up so and down. So the base can Yeah. And um, pan and so on. And then the my camera has uh, cords that go in and it comes down to my laptop. And we, I just... Now I can put that thing anywhere I want and I'm 32 feet up in the air and I get the perfect perspective to when you have a, a 90 foot or 100 foot cathedral going up. I um, am pretty much in the middle going up and I have this perspective that no one can ever get mm -hmm. and it shows these things in the light that I feel that they should be shown in. And is there a feed that you get to your laptop? Yeah, that you can so see? it's a live feed. Live so, feed. Yeah, so it's going down and so I can see live on there and I, you know, and I, then I, you know, um, pan the head to where I need it to go in and then get, finally get it and then I can just push on the computer and I can fire the camera shutter. How, how much permission do you need from the government or people Zero. around? Zero. Zero. They, they don't care? No. No. I mean, they, somebody should be paying you, yeah, running no. up to you and say, thank you so much. Here's a red envelope, you know, for doing this. I wish. <laughs> Hopefully, you know, I, I hope one day, um, I really do hope. I, I hope this means something to the Vietnamese. Um, I hope all the work that I've been doing over the 30 years, I, I hope my documentation of Hanoi will mean something to you know, the Ministry of Culture and the, the cultural um, historians, you know, that I hope this, I hope my recording of, of, of Vietnam and the landscapes and so on uh, will actually serve as a record, you know, for the government and for the people, for the, for the people. Like that, and that it will be able to be shared and, you know, long after I'm gone, that's, that's part of what I want my um, legacy to be about, that I, I documented this country and I photographed things that are no longer here. This is what we used to be. Why, why do you think you give so much emotions to this specific region or work? Um, I don't know. I really don't know. It's just my calling. Um, I guess if you want to get down to it, I'm, I have faith in God. That is who I am. I'm not Catholic. I'm Christian, but my faith and it, I grew up with faith as a young kid. I left it. Um, I never not believed in God, but I just didn't follow God. I didn't think about God. And I always prayed to God when I was in trouble or something, you know, or as it, but around 15, I stopped going to church and just kind of living off. And then it was in, you know, my mid-40s, started coming back to my faith. And um, so personally, um, it's something that I believe in that this is my calling. And this is part of my work is to, to give, to help heal, um, to create understanding, um, for people who don't know about Vietnam, uh, Americans, Europeans, whoever, and Vietnamese themselves, and also to um, people in Vietnam who have never traveled. It, it's something that I, I hope that can create awareness and understanding for their own country. And it's just something I believe that was, it was from the war that for my instance, it was for the war because my father went there and that's where the interest came in for me. And as soon as I, like I said, as soon as I landed, it was like, this is where I'm supposed to be. 
And then, you know, I have a Vietnamese wife. I have, I have half, you know, my kids are Vietnamese. Um, and quite honestly, I, I am as comfortable there. Actually, I'm probably more comfortable. <laughs> I, was say that. <laughs> I am probably more comfortable there than I am here. And it's been that way actually for probably a good 15 to 18 years, even though I, I struggle there sometimes because there's some, of course, there's certain things about here that I don't like yeah. and I struggle with as well. But I, I'm so comfortable there in, in all situations, whether I'm in the countryside, whether I'm in deep into the Mekong Delta, whether I'm in, in both any city. I'm just like, I'm out on my own. I, I absolutely love it. You know, we all have these funny assumptions in life where you look at something and you you assume what you think and what you see is, you know, I'd been working with Erin uh, for the last few months, you know, kind of supporting her and, and making introductions when making introductions when I can. And I'm like, I see your name and I, I don't know who you are and it's off to the sidelines. I'm like, oh, Peter's just here for the ride, right? But that's not the case at all. Mm. It's not. Now I could see the driving force of two people doing mm. this enormous heavy lifting here in Washington, D.C. Mm. to put these events. And I would like my audience to know how important it is to travel to Washington, D.C. every Tachungtu mm. from here on out. And I really continue. I hope Thanks. that you continue. You both continue to do the work that you do because... Although I come from the biggest community uh, outside of Vietnam, um, the biggest Vietnamese community outside of yep. Vietnam in Orange County in L.A., this is nothing. We have not put on anything compared to what mm. you guys have done here in uh, Washington, D.C. Mm. Thank you. It's um, like, you know, like what we've spoken about in, in certain situations. It's I mean, we started thinking about this 20 years ago, and that's, I think, that was most certainly, you know, an odd situation how Erin and I met in the very first place because she saw one of my images at an exhibition and it brought her back to her childhood. Even though she was American, she was going back to Vietnam every six weeks. She wasn't feeling Vietnamese then because she coming here in 79 and having to, like what I spoke about before, survive. And, and that meant be an American in her, that's in her words. She had to become American to, and to really to, she was living here and she wanted to su succeed. So her image of me seeing my image made her feel Vietnamese again. And when we met, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's uh, she's, I think through my work, trying to think about like who this white guy is, you know, who's been living there already, um, who's been working there for 20 years already, knows so much more about mm -hmm. my country than I, you know, than I do. And those are her words. And eventually this started bringing her back. And then we started thinking about all of these things. 20 years ago, we saw a film festival at the Smithsonian here. And that's when we both came out and we were like, one day we gotta have, like, we gotta have a Vietnamese film festival here. You know, let's do a Vietnamese, because there was no Vietnamese yeah. films here. And so here we are 20 years later, and not only did we have a film festival, but we have a whole entire week, Vietnam week planned with, you know, 
writers and authors and artists and culinary, um, you know, and, and throughout the rest of the year, too. We have events every month and a half. We have something going on, too. So it's, it's, it's uh, and that's promoting, again, that's promoting Vietnam through art and culture. There's no politics. There's nothing. It's just solidly art and culture to bring awareness and um, to, to Vietnam. Peter, you're, you're a storyteller by, 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 by trade, by definition, uh, your heart. What is the difference between um, the storytelling that you do through photography with these churches versus the, I, I guess what I'm asking is, why not put a documentary together um, to explain more? Because now I'm like, I'm banging at the door for you to be like, can you find out more? You're over there. Yeah. Why don't you just put a video crew together? I, I'm just wondering aloud, has that crossed your mind? Why would you not do that? Because your visual ability to put these frames together um, <clears throat> continuously to, to, to put some context to the history, to mm. the, the way these things are, are built, the, the, the design, the funding. I, I, I'm sure you have the same questions I do. Yeah. Why, what, what, what would stop you from doing that? And what, what's the difference? I mean, has it ever thought across uh, your mind? I guess um, me personally doing that, it's, it's more of mental capacity. What I can, you know, it takes so much of my time and my focus to actually just photo, just work on my project alone. However, it's interesting you say there is, there are, there is a Vietnamese company who actually went with me. They are making a documentary on me and particularly on this project. And they Sweet. went with me for three days on my last trip down to Nam Ding. And they will be going again. VTV, you know, Vietnam Television 4, who just interviewed us and who was here, who you met, they are going to do a story on this as well, which I, I you know, yeah, it's a feather in my cap or whatever. I, I, it, I'm happy. I don't particularly like seeing myself on, on yeah. TV and stuff. I, I don't like hearing myself. Um, I'm very critical of myself on that. But I hope it brings awareness again, more awareness to on this particular subject of, of the, the cathedrals. You know, they're, these things are 100, 150, 135 years old, and they're being torn down. And it's sad and it, it, they need to be, um, they, they need to be, be protected. They need to be protected. And, um, and, and then there needs to be, I, I, it sounds like VTV is going in to do three days, four days with a profile on you, but you, <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry, need to be the leader of, of this, like yeah. a bigger documentary because because I would enjoy it from your visualization of these churches in a video or in yeah. film, right? I need a crew that, to help me like a planner and That's and what producer, I'm talking about. Yeah, producer. yeah. Because, I mean, this is, sounds like VTV's segment. You know, it's a yeah. segment. But if you were to be like getting down to the history and really digging deep yeah. and, and getting visual like the way um, yeah. you know you do in photography yeah that's that would be a different level i'm hoping that that will happen with this other company who is actually they are funding it and they are doing the full document like they are making yeah. a documentary and they are going to follow me the entire project um we are getting um, we are searching out historians, actually. I'm not a historian. I can help with that. You know? I can help some, some oh, historians, yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. I mean, you know, they getting a historian to 
look into the history of, of all of these and what's happening behind the planning. I don't know the future of the plan. I just know that they're coming down and um, I know I'm scratching the surface on all of this stuff. Um, my job is just to photograph and document them before they come down in an artistic way as well. I'm an artist and these are my main source of income is selling prints and galleries. And so I'm actually photographing these in a, in a contemporary photographic vision that I'm hoping that people would want a beautiful would, contemporary print that's, you know, it's seven, you know, 80 inches tall by 64 inches wide. Um, it's like a vertical big screen TV yeah. on, 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 on a wall inside of a, a yeah. your living room or something. It's, they're beautiful. Yeah. The, the blue church that you have in, yeah. in your, it's, it's like yeah. magnificent. And who, who, who in their right mind as a Vietnamese person would not want to own one of those, you yeah. know? I, that's what I hope. I mean, uh, I've got three kids going into college. I need, <laughs> I need some, I need some print sales. No, it's um, but that is that is actually how I make my you know make my living um, as as a professional artist. But um, but I back to your point about the documentary. I I I would love to have you know I think it's important too. I mean, of course, I would love to have a, a documentary on because I I do feel the importance of it. Um. That's a big project, and there needs to be funding for it as yeah. well. But it's again, like the basis of this, it's it's important. Like this is important for the history of this country. Other people, are, other photographers are doing other things, and other photographers are, you know, here in the U.S. They're documenting and making documents on this or that. Or my calling, for some reason, ended up in Vietnam, and I'm I. Sometimes it takes an outsider to see what you live within like it's i have a project in hong kong called surface unseen I, I i lived there for i lived in hong kong for six years and i love it there and i see things i go around and see things because it was a new place for me and i could see things that normal everyday people go by and they don't catch and it's the same thing with here you know when we had so many friends from vietnam who were here this week they were just on driving into DC. They were pointing things out that I drive by every day that I didn't see. And so sometimes it takes an outsider to come in to see things differently and point things out. And maybe that's where my calling came in. And all I know is that every time I go there, I mean, I have a list of projects that is. It's like 20 deep. I mean, it'll, it'll continue the rest of my lifetime. I, I know that I will just continue to photograph there. I, ha I have like 20 projects I could work on right now. The church project for me hits me. In a, wow. It, it, it's well, your grandmother's the, from... Yeah, from, that's, uh, that's why, yeah. yeah. And it's, it's probably the way Aaron... Uh, now I get it. Now I see the connection that Aaron saw in you uh, 20 years ago or, or however many years ago when yeah. she felt that connection because when I saw the church yeah. uh, and you know I, I just it's just strange connection like I have scenarios playing in my mind right now like how could I be involved in this documentary it's this is how deep it's going wow. how connected I feel about Great. it right now so 
thank you so much, Peter, yeah. um, for coming on um, and and actually opening up your your studio, your home, your city yeah, to to your guests and to me, uh, and allowing me to sit and have this conversation with the work that you do. Uh, this this week has been great. It's been fabulous meeting you. You know, and as soon as I I've known about your podcast, and it's just I'm listening to it all the time, and it's just like wow, this is awesome. You know, and then when you you know when you get in, in involved with with Aaron to ask her to come on and we're talking with you to come in here to Vietnam week. I was just really excited to meet you and um, oh, this has been a privilege and I'm, I'm so happy you, you asked me to be on this. Um, I'm not Vietnamese, um, but I'm sitting here and, and giving the last 30 years of my life, you know, work in that country here. That's what I'm dedicated to. Yeah, and, 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 and I appreciate I, and now that. I've opened my heart a little bit more to the fact that um, just because I don't, the guest is not Vietnamese, because I still have reservations, but after today, I'm like, wait a minute, I have to get a little bit more, a lot more open with this idea of mm. anyone who is contributing to the really the cultural sort of like mm. visualization or taste or, or whatever it, it 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 it's a building block and it's a mosaic of 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 things that human beings can experience when it comes to vietnam mm. so i i appreciate you opening up my mind and my heart yeah. and and being um able to experience uh, vietnam through a completely different lens right oh this was fabulous thanks for thank having you, me Peter. thanks for thanks having me on yeah excellent Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. Special thanks to Brittany Tran, to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Christo Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast.